short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War Show, Thank you, Cam. <laughs> I don't know what episode this is. I'm just looking it up. Uh, 30? Yes, 30. 30, good old. 30. 30. 10 plus 3. No, 10 plus 3. Yeah. 30 is the new 20. <laughs> uh, they say. I'm. We're going to do more, col- more Fidel today because yeah. we got... We got cut off, blue-balled, in our last Cold War <laughs> Fidel episode because I had to go to an appointment. Don't have to go to any appointments today. So, more, more Fidel Castro. We're going to finish off... Yeah. This might go a couple of episodes, but finish off uh, going through that New York Times article that um, we mentioned before. So, it's going to act in two ways. Number one, it's going to give you uh, a, sort of a very brief introduction to Fidel Castro... Um, and a little bit about the the, the big the, the basics of the Cuban Revolution. And we're going to, as I said last time, we're going to do this in a lot more detail much later on in the series. We're just doing this now because he, mm-hmm. he recently passed away. And, and there's a lot of stuff in the media, and, and it'd be good for listeners of this series to know how much bullshit and spin is <laughs> uh, contained in what you're hearing in the mainstream media. So I think that's part of it. Um, and I've got a lot of... A lot of notes today to 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 cover off and and the second part of this is to just demonstrate how much spin there is in the mainstream media in the west today so i think it's a good lesson to help us start to appreciate how much bullshit we're being fed by our so-called free media uh free as in free to just tell us a whole bunch of bullshit is basically what it's free. Uh, it, it's uh, government propaganda, pro-Western uh, corporate government propaganda, a lot of it. So hopefully, I, I hope yeah. I hope everyone's going to find this interesting. I, I certainly have found it interesting uh, pulling this article apart. Makes me want to do more of it, Ray. Makes me want to oh, yeah. create a whole new podcast series where we, we take... <gasps> Called the Obit Podcast. No, not just obits. We just break down <laughs> news stories, right? Like we take we take big thorny issues, oh, like, yeah. like what's going on in Syria, right, at the moment. Right. We take yeah. we take stories and we break down the media coverage of it and and pull it apart ah. strand by strand and look for evidence to support their claims. Look for. Uh, alternative versions of what's going on from alternative news sources around the world and just try and get, A, try and break it down and get a a, a deeper understanding about big issues today and what's happening and, B, continue to um, develop an appreciation for 
the spin that we're getting in Western media on on these stories and why that spin might exist, what their interests are, where they lay, qui bono, Cicero, follow the money, that kind of stuff. I like that. Yeah, it's like you would take a couple stories from the left, a couple stories from the right about the same event, break them down, spin it, and again, just try to figure out what's really going on because a lot of people just accept it as face value. They don't think critically because, like you've said a billion times, it takes too much time, take too much energy. Let us do it for you. I like that idea. Yeah, me too. Well, maybe we should think about that as a series. Have you got a, have you got a heater yeah. going on in the background there? I've got, yes. It, it kicks on every once in a while. It'll go off in a moment. I can't do much about it, but when you're talking, I'll put it on mute for the convenience of the audience. Uh, you're very thoughtful. Yeah, but if I could if I could just add something I was thinking about, because I was thinking about Castro, how much I know about him now versus, you know, a couple of months ago before he died, whatever, and, you know, just the stuff that I've been told as, as your typical American, typical good-looking American. Um, and it, it, just, it just dawned on me, and for those of you who, who don't quite get what we're doing yet, or maybe you haven't caught up yet, I mean, I, and this might sound obvious, but I think it's worth saying, this is not us saying Castro good, New York Times bad. It's not that simple. It's not that straightforward. Nothing on this planet is that simple or straightforward anymore. And we just, like you were saying, we want to demonstrate that the United States is doing what every other power, what every other empire has been doing for the last 10,000 years or whatever. When you have an enemy, whether it's a military or an economic or cultural enemy, whatever, and if it's all three, then you have to spin it that you are not just the good guy. You are absolutely perfect. Everything you do is for the right reason. You're protecting your own. And the other guy's just not confused or whatever. He's absolutely evil and he deserves everything he gets. Because growing up, Cuba was bad. Castro was bad. The way that, you know, they were come, they wanted to come and take your daughters in the middle of the night. They were going to steal everything. They were going to bomb us. We, we just got the full package here in the United States. So, again, this is just us saying, here is a, another version of Castro. Here's another version of Cuba. Here's the context of Cuba and Castro in a larger history. And it's just nice. I, I wish I had had this, 50, you know, 40, 30 years ago, someone to break down and give you a little bit of truth or at least give you a, an alternative viewpoint so you don't just accept wholeheartedly what you've been told through the boob tube so again i just want to this is just another demonstration that life is a lot more complex than what we give it credit for uh, but that's just the way it is and hopefully you'll, you'll be able to get a lot out of this yeah i think that's well said ray and and so we're not we're not trying to say castro was an angel um and perfect and our lord and savior jesus christ um, we don't even think our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Come, come well, I across myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right, and and partly what I hope people will get out of shows like this, not just a better understanding, maybe of Castro and the Cuban Revolution, or, or might pique their interest to want to know more, um, but also j- just to develop a, a deeper level of skepticism uh, about what they're fed by Amen. the media. Now, skepticism isn't the same as cynicism. Cynicism is saying, oh, it's all shit, everything's shit, fuck it all. Skepticism is going, look, um, I know that the they lie to us on a regular basis for a variety of reasons, commercial, political, economic. Uh, they have done forever. They will continue to do probably forever. So I know a good percentage of what I'm reading, watching, listening to in the media is spin, it's propaganda, 
Um, and it's my job to to switch my brain on when I'm reading, watching, listening to this stuff and not just swallow it whole um, like Ray did in Vegas and to... Yeah, I did. And to... People just listening to this episode don't know what we're talking about. They haven't listened to the rest of the shows. Be scratching their head. Don't worry about it. Move on. Um, it was a beautiful thing. Don't worry about it. It's... You don't just swallow it whole. You, you you have a healthy a healthy level of skepticism about everything the media tells you, and your politicians tell you, corporations tell you, and uh, yeah, that's what I hope people will get out of something like this. Anyway, let's move on. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat something I think I started at the beginning of at the end of the last episode, which is the New York Times' beginning of sort of a bio on Fidel's life. Um, this is like, uh, you know, sort of, I don't know, halfway through the New York Times article. Fidel Alejandro Castro Rus was born on August 13th, 1926 or 1927 in some reports in what was then the eastern Cuban province of Oriente, the son of a plantation owner, Angel Castro and one of his maids, Lina Ruz Gonzalez, who became his second wife and had seven children, good Catholics. The father was a Spaniard who had arrived in Cuba under mysterious circumstances. One account, supported by Mr. Castro himself, was that his father had agreed to take the place of a Spanish aristocrat who had been drafted into the Spanish army in the late 19th century to fight against Cuban independence and American hegemony. Other versions suggest that Angel Castro went penniless to Cuba, but eventually established a plantation and did business with the despised American-owned United Fruit Company. By the time Fidel was a youngster, his father was a major landholder. We'll talk about United Fruit Company a bit later on. Um, But I think the interesting takeaway there is that Fidel was born into a relatively upper middle-class family. He didn't come from the poorer segments of society. He came from the relatively well-to-do. His father was a plantation owner. Yeah, I just and I love the idea of um, his sister later on, his sister's going to be confused about how could he possibly be a communist? He had the best of everything. This makes no sense. He didn't struggle. He didn't want. But again, we're going to find out that Fidel wasn't just thinking about himself. He was thinking about Cuba at large. Yes, he was thinking about himself as well, but he, he really did see the plight of the people. He did see their suffering, even though he did not experience it personally growing up. He does seem to genuinely have cared about his people. And, you know, he's one of these guys that probably could have just uh, gone along quite happily under the Batista regime. He was uh, of the upper class. He could have just kept doing what he was doing. He wasn't one of the oppressed. His family weren't one of the oppressed. He had an education. They were one of the oppressors. They they owned land and they and they had people working for him. And he marries into money. So again, not exactly the start of your typical um, revolutionary fighter. Yeah, but it seems that at university he started to read Marx. Um, and uh, become a little bit more politicized. Anyway, we'll keep going. Fidel was a boisterous young student who was sent away to study with the Jesuits at the Colegio del Dolores in Santiago de Cuba and later to the Colegio de Belén 
an exclusive Jesuit high school in Havana. Cuban law has it that he was headstrong and fanatical even as a boy. In one account, Fidel was said to have bicycled head-on into a wall to make a point to his friends about the strength of his will. <laughs> wow. You don't think I'll do it? I'll do it. You think yeah. I'll do it? Supposedly, they paid him $5 or 5 whatever Pesos. to do it. But yeah, he was... Mm. Pesos, he was he was showing them that even though he was afraid, he could overcome his fear through his willpower. And as far as I can tell, because I tried to look through different sources, the son of a bitch did it. Yeah. In another often repeated tale, young Fidel and his class were led on a mountain hike by a priest. The priest slipped in a fast-moving stream and was in danger of drowning until Fidel pulled him to shore. Then both knelt in prayers of thanks for their good fortune. Uh, I should point out that later in life, certainly after the revolution, Fidel said he wasn't a believer. He was an atheist. Um, but Cuba, being Spanish for the previous few hundred years, anyway, uh, very, very traditional Catholic uh, society at the before the revolution. Mm-hmm. And I do want to point out that he was quite the stud. He was at least six foot tall, broad shoulders, so I'm sure he could have pulled the priest out easily. But yeah, the one, the one, the things that Americans don't give him credit for, I certainly never heard of this when I was watching all the videos. I mean, he's just basically taller than everybody in the room most of the time. He was just a big giant of a man, but you don't say that about him in the American press because that makes him seem almost kingly or larger than life. Just one of those little things that was, I think, purposefully left out. Oh, really? Yeah, possibly, yeah. A sense of destiny accompanied Mr. Castro as he entered the University of Havana's law school in 1945 and almost immediately immersed himself in radical politics. He took part in an invasion of the Dominican Republic that unsuccessfully tried to oust the dictator Rafael Trujillo. He became increasingly obsessed with Cuban politics and led student protests and demonstrations even when he was not enrolled in the university. Mr. Castro's university days earned him the image of rabble-rouser and seemed to support the view that he had had communist leanings all along. But in an interview in 1981, quoted in Tad Zulk's 1986 biography Fidel, Mr. Castro said that he had flirted with communist ideas but did not join the party. Uh, That was the first biography I read on Fidel, actually, that Tad Zulk biography when it first came out. Mm. I had entered into contact with Marxist literature, Mr. Castro said. At that time, there were some communist students at the University of Havana, and I had friendly relations with them, but I was not in the socialist youth. I was not a militant in the Communist Party. He acknowledged that radical philosophy had influenced his character. I was then acquiring a revolutionary conscience. I was active. I struggled, but let us say I was an independent fighter. After receiving his law degree... Mr. Castro briefly represented the poor, often bartering his services for food. In 1952, he ran for Congress as a candidate for the opposition Orthodox Party, but the election was scuttled because of a coup staged by Mr. Batista. So I mentioned this last time. He was a lawyer who worked pro bono or, or in, for food for the poor. Now... Yeah. You know, I think you need to. We need to think about that in terms of it representing his character as a as a young man, a young adult, graduated from university. Um, when people uh, depict the revolution as his 
uh, attempt to grab power for himself because he was power mad. He just wanted to be the Kudio, the, the, the strong man. It doesn't really uh, map, in my mind, to a lawyer working pro bono for the poor. Well, I'm just trying to picture, because I work with a bunch of doctors and uh, and residents, and I'm just trying to picture the lawyer equivalent to finishing law school and going, yeah, I'll, I'll take that case for some food. I mean, I just I just can't see it. I mean, this guy is actually, you know, helping the poor. He doesn't ignore the poor. He sees them. He works among them. Again, just not your typical um, affluent child who's grown up to just continue on the family's tradition of living well. So again, he is down there with the masses and he can see their plight and he's actually trying to do something about it. And that's the question that's always sort of bugged me about Fidel and Che Guevara and Raul Castro and the rest of the Cuban revolutionary leaders. As I said this in the last time, on one hand, I read about what they actually did before the revolution. You know, Che was a doctor in Argentina or sort of a, a, a medical student anyway. I don't think he, he finished uh, before he got swept up in the revolution. Um, uh, and he traveled around. If anyone's read the book, his diaries, the motorcycle diaries, or seen the film, um, you know, he before, before he met Fidel, he traveled around South America on a motorbike with a friend and just went and gave free medical uh, assistance to the poor people around Argentina and other parts of Latin America just drove a, wow. just drove around for I think like a year and just got, dispensed free medical help uh, while he traveled the countryside so you read these stories of Che as a young man Fidel as a young man it, it, they seem to be genuinely concerned with the plight of the poor in their countries and then you read the American depiction of them, which is 180 degrees. Uh, they're just complete <laughs> madmen, power mad. And so it doesn't gel. Uh, now, I think, as I said last time, it's possible that they changed over time. That's always possible. You can, mm-hmm. you know, Rupert Murdoch was a socialist at, at Oxford. Um, I, I think today he's completely apolitical. <laughs> but, you know, people people can change as they get old. I voted ultra right wing when I was uh, in my 20s and now I'm probably lefter than most of the left parties that we have here so in my in my political uh, perspective so yeah look people change but is it is it is it easy to accept that somebody who was willing to work for free for the poor uh, as a young man then becomes an oppressor of the poor later on in life I mean, it's it's possible, but I think right. I, 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 you know, and then of course, as I'll cover later on, throughout his entire life, Fidel, in all of his speeches, and I've got some quotes from some of his last speeches and letters here, still talking about social justice and human rights, and you know, fighting for those. His entire life, he never changed his story about that. So. And in order to convince me right. that he was a bullshit artist and that none of this is genuine or authentic, you need to provide some some pretty hard evidence, I think. Well, then there's the other part that you've said a billion times since we started this show. Sometimes the admission 
omission of facts that I'd never heard that he was a lawyer. I didn't know Che was a doctor or a medical student or whatever. You just hear all the supposed bad things. So again, it's sometimes you don't have to tell lies. You just leave out other parts that make them seem more human or that shows other parts of their character. Mm. Well, and, and to the New York Times' credit, they do give a brief mention to uh, Fidel's work as a lawyer for the poor in this. Mr. Castro's initial response to the Batista government... Oh, sorry, the, the other thing is, um, I've, in that last section, he uh, ran for Congress as a candidate. So yep. before he was a revolutionary, he was trying to change the system uh, through the political uh, process. So I think that right. I think that's interesting. He wasn't immediately a revolutionary. He tried to become a politician first, and then there was a coup, as they mentioned, by Batista. So that got scuttled. Mr. Castro's initial response to the Batista government was to challenge it with a legal appeal, claiming that Mr. Batista's actions had violated the Constitution. Even as a symbolic act, the attempt was futile. So he's tried to change it by entering politics, and he's tried to change it as a lawyer, uh, and both had failed, failed to make a dent. So it's at this point where he becomes uh, a military revolutionary. Yeah, but again, I mean, he—I mean—that's just a simple sentence um, that he uh, that he put it, you know, a challenge challenged it with a legal appeal. But come on, that's like Hitler coming to power and going, uh, "Sir, I am taking you to court." I mean, the Batista regime, as we're going to see, was not very nice at all, and the fact that he stood up in a very visible way to challenge them legally through the court system. Again, to me, I don't know all of the details, but it, it seems like that takes a lot of courage. Uh, when, when a lot of people just would have given up or gone right to the revolutionary uh, aspect of defiance. But again, to, to stand up and to try to take them to the court seems pretty courageous to me. And again, does somebody who takes a government to, to court or presses a legal challenge because they're... A dictatorship. A dictatorship for violating the Constitution. <laughs> does that sound like the person who then goes on to become a repressive dictator? I mean, it just—it's—it uh, it doesn't work, right? It's—it's it, it's hard to imagine that those two people are the same person. Anyway, Absolutely. his core group of radical students gained followers, and on July 26, nineteen fifty-three, Mr. Castro led them in an attack on the Moncada barracks in Santiago de Cuba. That date is important, July twenty-six, because for the rest of uh, his life. Uh, he will talk about the July 26th movement, the, um, you know, when they come back and, and uh, start the revolution in Cuba later on. They call themselves the July 26th movement. Uh, July 26th, that's where it comes from. The, his first attempt at um, a revolutionary attack on a barracks, the Moncada barracks. However, it was a disaster, as we'll see. Many of the rebels were killed. The others were captured, as were Mr. Castro and his brother Raul. At his trial, Mr. Castro defended the attack. Mr. Batista had issued an order not to discuss the proceedings, but six Cuban journalists who had been allowed in the courtroom recorded Mr. Castro's defense. Now, there was, um, there was a handful, I think there was uh, sort of 80 or 85 revolutionaries that attacked Moncada and about 1,000 soldiers in the barracks. Uh, with right. overwhelming firepower, who surrounded them and just mowed them down. Um, so it was fairly, it was fairly brutal. 
Castro, in his defense, uh, and I recently reread the entire speech of his defense because, as they mentioned, journalists recorded it and it got published in full. It's um, it's something that I highly recommend uh, people read. You can find a copy of it in a book called Fidel Castro Reader, which is a collection of his speeches over the course of his life. Go and read it if you're interested in Fidel and, and in determining for yourself what you think about the truth of his character. Go and read his speeches, and particularly this one, um, in his own defense. It's, uh, it's, it's brilliant. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. Um, and uh, it'll give you a sense of at least who he was in 1953 and what he was willing to die for. I mean... They, they led this attack expecting to die. He got arrested and expected to be executed, or at least life imprisonment. <laughs> so when he's giving right. this speech, which, which is a vehement attack, not only on the Batista dictatorship, but also on the legal system and how corrupt the legal system was, he's, he's, he's taking apart the prosecution team, the judges, and the government. And, and he's completely expecting to die he doesn't expect he's gonna get out of this so he's just right. uh and he, he doesn't believe anyone will ever hear his speech as well because he knows there's um a complete clampdown on um this speech ever being heard um batista had given orders that no one was allowed to witness the trial but some journalists for some reason managed to get in there um, but he's it's it's vehement and eloquent and i highly recommend it uh, i mean and entertaining too very entertaining Anyway, uh, part of it they, they quote here. As for me, I know the jail will be as hard as it has ever been for anyone, filled with threats, with vileness and cowardly brutality, Mr. Castro declared. I do not fear this as I do not fear the fury of the miserable tyrant who snuffed out the life of 70 brothers of mine. Condemn me. It does not matter. History will absolve me. This is one of... Fidel's most famous quotes, history will absolve me. Nice. Mr. Castro was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Mr. Batista then made what turned out to be a huge strategic error, believing that the rebels' energy had been spent and under pressure from civic leaders to show that he was not a dictator, he released Mr. Castro and his followers in an amnesty after the 1954 presidential election. Actually, was getting a Oops. lot of pressure from the U.S. at the time, too. Uh, even though the U.S. had been supporting him for decades and continued to support him during the Cuban Revolution, they were concerned that he didn't look too abusive. So they were putting some pressure on him to tone it down a little bit. We have evidence of CIA files, CIA discussions, where they were trying to get him to not look like he was too much of a brutal tyrant. It's not good for business. Uh, partly that, not good for perception as well, and, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, Mr. Castro then went into exile in Mexico, where he plotted his return to Cuba. He tried to buy a used American PT boat to carry his band to Cuba, but the deal fell through. Then he caught sight of a beat-up 61-foot wooden yacht named Grandma, once owned by an American who lived in Mexico City. <laughs> the Grandma remains on display in Havana, encased in glass. What are you laughing at? No, just uh, just the, he finds this old relic um, beat-up oh. yacht. He's like, yes, that will be perfect for my revolution. Yeah. Some grandma. beat up old ship, the grandma. 
During Mr. Castro's long rule, his character and image underwent several transformations, beginning with his days as a revolutionary in the Sierra Maestra of eastern Cuba. After arriving on the coast in the overloaded yacht with Che Guevara and 80 of their comrades in December 1956, Mr. Castro took on the role of freedom fighter. He engaged in a campaign of harassment and guerrilla warfare that infuriated Mr. Batista, who had seized power in a 1952 garrison revolt, ending a brief period of democracy. So a couple of things they didn't mention there. So Che Guevara, people may or may not know, wasn't Cuban. He was Argentinian when Fidel was in exile in Mexico. He met uh, Che there. Che, as I mentioned, had been traveling around. Um, uh, on, was covered in the motorcycle diaries, and so they met, got you know, got talking about revolution, and that's when Che decided to go with Fidel to help Fidel uh, be the doctor. Basically, he went to be the the revolution's doctor. Um, uh, went to Cuba with him, even though Che was very sick himself, uh, suffered from really chronic asthma which is bad enough uh, when you're living in a city. Uh, he also came from a, an upper-middle-class family. But when, you, um, when you're in the jungles of Cuba uh, fighting a campaign without access to um, a puffer, uh, he was very sick. Um, and if you read his diaries wow. of the, the revolution, uh, a lot of the time he's just talking about how sick he was, he got left behind, he, he had to wait uh, to recover many many times because he was too sick to go on with the rest of the band and um, nearly died a whole bunch of times from asthma uh, while on campaign uh, the other thing that's interesting there is uh, still no mention so far in this entire article of the US's support for Batista for his coup and for his regime afterwards they supplied tank the US supplied tanks rockets guns military training money um, particularly during the uh, revolution the revolutionary wars war um, the US were heavily supporting Batista uh, with armaments mm-hmm. and training and uh, money to defeat the revolutionaries unsuccessfully those we know Although his soldiers and weapons vastly outnumbered Mr. Castro's, Mr. Batista grew fearful of the young guerrilla's mesmerizing oratory. Oratory? Oratory. Fuck. There you go. Oratory. He ordered government troops not to rest until they had killed Mr. Castro, and the army frequently reported that it had done so. <laughs> Newspaper. Can I go home now? Yeah. I killed him. Yeah. Newspapers around the world reported his death in the December 1956 landing. But three months later, Mr. Castro was interviewed for a series of articles that would revive his movement and thus change history. The esca- and prove he was a vampire. The escapade began... No, that's Caesar. Get the Caesar and Castro. Oh, I know there's a lot in common there, but different people. <laughs> the es- Really? Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe, well, shit, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Ma, the escapade began when Castro loyalists... Con- everything makes more sense when you think of Julius Caesar as a vampire, right? Everything. <laughs> everything. Like he, it does. He becomes Augustus. Really, really, Augustus is just Julius. Yes. Lives forever. He becomes yes. Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and right. becomes Fidel. And now he's... Uh, who is he today? I don't know. Who is he now? I don't know. Please tell me it's not Putin. 
No, for who would he be yeah. now? Who is who is the biggest fighter for social justice today in the face oh, of the planet? Oh, okay. Ooh. Um, well, I don't know about the biggest, Edward, but... He's, he's, he's Julian Assange now. That's who he is. Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, uh, Bernie Sanders. Who knows? Oh, maybe he's you know. just Bernie Sanders. Mystery Saul. Yeah. Whew. Who's he going to be next, though? That's the question. Watch out, boys and girls. <laughs> the escapade began when Castro loyalists contacted a correspondent, an editorial writer for the New York Times, Herbert L. Matthews, who and arranged for him to interview Mr. Castro. A few Castro supporters took Mr. Matthews into the mountains disguised as a wealthy American planter. Drawing on his reporting, Mr. Matthews wrote sympathetically of both the man and his movement, describing Mr. Castro, then 30 parting the jungle leaves and striding into a clearing for the interview. This was quite a man, a powerful six-footer, olive-skinned, full-faced with a straggly beard, Mr. Matthews wrote. Um, by the way, do you know why they wore the beards? No, I just figured they didn't have the time or the whatever uh, to shave, but no, tell me why. Well, the uh, that might have been the original thinking behind it. But then what happened after a while is beards weren't in fashion in Havana, in Cuba in general. Everyone was clean shaven. And so having a long beard was a sign that you were part of the revolution. If you So it made it harder for them to get in, for, for them to be infiltrated. Uh, someone couldn't, com- couldn't ah. come along and say, oh, yeah, because as, as the war went on they they you know grew they would go through villages and towns and people would join the revolutionary army and um it was easy to tell who was a revolutionary and who wasn't because the revolutionaries all had long beards nice. uh, a bit like when caesar grew his beard uh when he was in spain uh fidel often said he would shave his beard when the revolution had accomplished its objectives and as we know, he died uh, two weeks ago or so, age 90, still wearing the beard. Still, that's right. Um, the three articles in the New York Times, which began on Sunday, Feb 24th, 1957, presented a Castro that Americans could root for. The personality of the man is overpowering, Mr. Matthews wrote. Here was an educated, dedicated fanatic, a man of ideals, of courage, and of remarkable qualities of leadership. So even this American journalist, when he's with him in the Sierra Maestro Mountains, uh, believes that he was a man of ideals. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think his passion... Uh, I think his passion definitely comes through because even when you're watching a speech and you can't understand a word they say, if they, if you turn off the translator or whatever, I mean, you can just see he's enthused with the ideas of what he's, whatever he's doing. So I could easily see that energy coming through to this American reporter. And the point is what the, what the ideals were. The, they were ideals of, of social justice, of liberty for his people, of getting, getting, rid of the uh, power and control that the U.S. corporations had over the Cuban industry, the Cuban people, the Cuban government. Um, These were the ideals that he stood for throughout his entire life. At least that's what he professed to believe in. And I think the, the burden of proof is on people who want to suggest that he didn't believe in those things and didn't fight for those things. You need to provide evidence to prove that he was something other than that. But even at this point, and again, he's 30, man, and I think Che was two years younger. 
So he's in his late 20s. Can you imagine fighting a revolution in the mountains against a massively um, superior uh, uh, enemy <laughs> uh, being supported by no. the US in the late 50s? I mean, they're... they're it was a it was a crazy crazy endeavor. I mean, it's it's amazing that they didn't all die, let alone the fact that they won. It's insane. Yeah, I just don't get about yeah because clearly the odds were way not in their favor, and and that they kept going, that they, they persevered, they attacked, they would go hide in the mountains, they harassed, uh, they were just driving Batista crazy, uh, trying to get him. He's doing everything he can to kill this man. But again, it's I, I don't know. I, I just think it's a part of who Castro is. He's a fighter. He's a you can call him a freedom fighter. You can call him an idealist. You can certainly call him a non-realist because what are the chances of him winning? But he's going at this and he's not giving up. And you've got to respect that kind of belief in yourself and the tenacity. And don't get me wrong, as an American, as a good, loyal American, I'm going to tear Castro apart later when we get to some of the things when he says he's going to do that he doesn't do or he doesn't do well once he's in power. But you've got to you've got to appreciate here's someone looking at the long odds against him and he does it anyway. I mean, it, it's it's pretty impressive. This is after he's already failed with the Moncada barracks attack and, and a bunch of his comrades died. He nearly, well, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison, nearly got executed, just manages to get out by the skin of his teeth. You would think most people would go, well, fuck, that's, that's it. it. I'm I'm done. Out. Yeah. <laughs> Can I get an application to the United Fruit Company, please? Thank you. I give yeah. up. I give up. But he, he yeah. doesn't do that. He turns around and comes back a few years later with 80 guys. Like, not 800, <laughs> not 8,000, not 80,000. <laughs> Me and my compadres. He comes back with 80 guys in, a, in an old rickety ship with a bunch of rickety guns. <laughs> called, the, called the grandma. Yeah. And but and yeah. and they sort of hit storms and crashed when they landed. They lost a bunch of their guns. So you got oh, you got eighty guys with no weapons, hardly any weapons, uh, <laughs> and they're so up against tens of thousands of heavily armed uh, government army. I mean, it was yeah. an insane endeavor, really. But they've got heart. Heart, H-E-A-R-T, not H-O-T. Yeah. Yeah, Heart. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it it was, you could call it brave, you could call it insane. Uh, They certainly, the the amount of self-belief that Castro had to have to do that helps, I think, understand uh, the things that he does later on when he goes up against the world's major superpower. Um, because uh, he just believes in himself that much, right? This guy, well, yeah. yeah. Well, so I was watching one of the documentaries, and and he was sitting around with a bunch of college chums when they were back in school, and they were all talking about what they wanted to be or what the, what they wanted to have when they were growing up. And some of them said, "Oh, I wanted to travel. I want a lot to have. A, I want to have a lot of friends. I want a successful career." They get to Castro and supposedly said, "I want glory." And damn if he isn't going after it. So again, you get it's you can call it good, you can call it bad or whatever, but just be honest about it. And he is going after what he thinks is important to him and also the plight of his people. Yeah. Who are certainly not in control of the vast resources of their country. I don't know what the source of that is, but I find that hard to believe. I Okay everything else I've read about Castro, I don't think you know, even even I don't know if people have seen this, but in the last week, Raul Castro announced that they've passed a law that um, 
there will be no statues of Fidel. Nothing will be named yeah. after Fidel. No streets, no buildings. There, he will not be glorified in, even in death. They've, they've passed a law to make sure that... Uh, it, it, Rael said something about... To, to make sure that people remember that he was only a human and that the revolution was right. built by humans. I mean, so, yeah. I, I, That's impressive. Well, I, I just don't think that it was about glory. I mean, and I, I think it was about... Um, it was a fight for right. social justice. I think a better word might be because he was young, and you know when you're young, you're full of piss and vinegar. Maybe more adventure than glory. But again, I mean, from from the get go, he does seem to be concerned about about the people, and he seem and he's sticking to that. So far, that's pretty consistent with his in his character. Mm. The articles repeated Mr. Castro's assertion that Cuba's future was anything but a communist state. He has strong ideas of liberty, democracy, social justice, the need to restore the constitution, to hold elections, Mr. Matthews wrote. When asked about the United States, Mr. Castro replied, you can be sure we have no animosity toward the United States and the American people. So this is something that uh, I think I touched on last time too. I think throughout his life, Castro had no issue with the American people per se. Uh, it was the American military industrial complex that he had an issue with, but he was always very warmly spoken about the American people. Even people like Kennedy, uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Later on, uh, he had warm things to say. He kind of felt sorry for Kennedy, I think. Um, felt like Kennedy sort of found himself in a bad situation when he took on the presidency. That He was led astray by the CIA and the, and the Pentagon. So, um, yeah, he had many warm things to say about JFK later in life. As for um, social justice, liberty and holding elections... It seems to me from reading a lot of this stuff that before the revolution and even in the early stages of after the revolutionary government had taken control, Castro genuinely thought that after the revolution, um, the US would recognize the new government. They would give them a fair shot. They would deal with them uh, and that he would be able to have elections, they would be able to have a democracy, that he would restore the constitution. But of course, what he discovered after the revolution had succeeded was that the US attacked them, <laughs> both uh, you know, tried to invade, attack them economically, right. literally clamp, yeah. clamp down on them, refused to do business with them, refused to deal with them. I'll go into some more detail around that later on. And his plans changed. So uh, what he thought, and again, the guy's 30 when he's being interviewed. Right? I think he was like 33 in 1959 after the revolution succeeded. He's a young man. He had a vision for how he thought it would go down. And then when it didn't go down that way, his plans changed. It's often depicted that he was lying in the in during the Revolutionary Wars, mm. that he, he was pulling the wool over people's eyes. I don't think that's the case. I think right. that... His vision for what would happen, his relationship with the United States in particular, he thought it was that they would recognize the government. When they didn't and tried to crush the revolutionary government, he needed to pivot. Makes sense. 
The Cuban government denounced Mr. Matthews and called the articles fabrications, but the news that he had survived the landing breathed life into Mr. Castro's movement. His small band of irregulars skirmished with government troops, and each encounter increased their support in Cuba and around the world, even though other insurgent forces in the cities were also fighting to overthrow the Batista government. It was the symbolic strength of his movement, not the armaments under Mr. Castro's control, that overwhelmed the government. By the time Mr. Batista fled from a darkened Havana airport just after midnight on New Year's Day 1959, Mr. Castro was already a legend. Competing opposition groups were unable to seize power. So again, up until this point in the article, zero mention of the United States support (laughs) for Batista, zero mention of the mob's connection to Cuba, They owned all of the casinos in Havana, as I said earlier. It was known as Latino Las Vegas. Before Las Vegas was Las Vegas, Havana was Las Vegas. Um, There was, they loved it. The mob loved it down there. There was no oversight, lots of skimming, lots of corruption. Uh, No one gave a shit what they could do. They obviously had great deal going on with Batista, who also was participating in the skim. And, And yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, in this part of the documentaries I was looking at, prostitution was, unfortunately for the women of Cuba, going very well. I'm sure some of it was voluntary, some some of it was not. And that will certainly be one of the things that will um, uh, uh, Castro will abhor and, and certainly try to smooth that out and take care of that as well. But like you're saying, this is a playground for the rich. As long as you've got the money, you come in and the people of the island are not able to enjoy the success that these entities are having because it's all being taken somewhere else. And that is just obviously what a revolutionary would fight against. Yeah, and and so far, the New York Times has mentioned none of this, particularly the U.S.'s support. They've talked about Batista being a dictator, but they haven't mentioned anywhere the U.S. Yeah. support for <laughs> yeah. it. So this is the sin of omission, it, right? Right, and, and it also mentioned one time when, when it talked about his father, the United Fruit Company. It didn't say anything else. It didn't say it was American, as far as I can remember. It just said that one time. So again, you don't have an idea of the context of any of this. Yeah, and I'll mention, I'll talk about them in a lot of, well, some detail later on. Um, um, They also don't mention the fact that US companies uh, controlled most of Cuba at the time um, and that Batista had handed them sort of major contracts to give them control uh, for kickbacks, massive, massive, massive Mm -hmm. kickbacks. Um, Also, when he left, when he left uh, Cuba, Batista, he took, Accounts differ, but it's somewhere in terms of hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, he basically cleaned out the federal treasury uh, wow. and left, put it in bank accounts in and Cayman Islands or Spain or somewhere. And he, uh, when he left, so when the revolution took over, I think there was something out of five hundred million dollars that had been in the federal treasury um, before they took over. There was mm-hmm. something like I think when they took it, they found there was fifty million left. Um, so he had cleaned it out. They they had no money, uh, essentially, in the federal treasury uh, when they took over. Hey, listen, I want to read um, a long quote. Now, this was this is. Um, I'm not going to tell you who the quote is from. I want mm-hmm. you to guess who this quote is from when I'm finished. Okay, listeners All playing right. at home, you can guess as well. <laughs> at the beginning of 1959, United States companies owned about 40 percent of the Cuban sugarlands, almost all the cattle ranches, 90 percent of the mines and mineral concessions, 80 percent of the utilities, 
practically all the oil industry and supplied two-thirds of Cuba's imports. In 1953, the average Cuban family had an income of $6 a week. 15 to 20% of the labor force was chronically unemployed. Only a third of the homes in the island even had running water. And in the years which preceded the Castro Revolution, this abysmal standard of living was driven still lower as population expansion outdistanced economic growth. Only 90 miles away stood the United States, their good neighbour, the richest nation on earth, its radios and newspapers and movies spreading the story of America's material wealth and surplus crops. But instead of holding out a helping hand of friendship to the desperate people of Cuba, nearly all our aid was in the form of weapons assistance. Assistance which merely strengthened the Batista dictatorship. Assistance which completely failed to advance the economic welfare of the Cuban people. Fulgencio Batista murdered 20,000 Cubans in seven years, and he turned democratic Cuba into a complete police state, destroying every individual liberty. Yet our aid to his regime and the ineptness of our policies enabled Batista to invoke the name of the United States in support of his reign of terror. Administration spokesmen publicly praised Batista, hailed him as a staunch ally and a good friend, at a time when Batista was murdering thousands, destroying the last vestiges of freedom, and stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from the Cuban people, and we failed to press for free elections. I believe that there is no country in the world, including any and all the countries under colonial domination, where economic colonization, humiliation, and exploitation were worse than in Cuba in part owing to my country's policies during the Batista regime. The symbol, of this sort shy, sh- the symbol of this short-sighted attitude is now on display in a Havana museum. It is a solid gold telephone presented to Batista by the American-owned Cuban telephone company. It is an expression of gratitude for the excessive telephone rate increase which the Cuban dictator had granted at the urging of our government. Administration spokesman publicly... Oh, I've reread that, sorry. But in October 1958, just a few days before Batista held a rigged and fraudulent election, Secretary of State Alan Dulles was the guest of honour. No, it wouldn't have been Alan Dulles. It would have been the other Dulles, wouldn't it? Secretary of State? No, it would have been Alan Dulles. Secretary of State Dulles was the guest of honour at a reception held by the Batista Embassy in Washington. The reception made only the social pages in Washington, but it made the Havana, and it was used by Batista to show how America favoured his rule. We stepped up a constant stream of weapons and munitions to Batista, justified in the name of hemispheric defence, when, in fact, their only real use was to crush the dictator's opposition. And even when the Cuban Civil War was raging, until March of 1958, the administration continued to send arms to Batista which were turned against the rebels, increasing anti-American feeling and helping to strengthen the influence of the communists. For example, in Santa Clara, Cuba, today there is an exhibit commemorating the devastation of that city by Batista's planes in December of 1958. The star item in that exhibit is a collection of bomb fragments inscribed with the handshake and the words, Mutual Defense Made in the USA.
So, damn. Who do you? I want three guests. Yeah, three guests. I want three guests. Okay. One, the vampire Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Two, our future president Donald Trump in fifty-two separate tweets. He had to put them all together. (laughs) Three, President Obama. I thought you would have said Noam Chomsky in there, no, some other lefty. <laughs> that was a speech I, uh, yeah. from a speech given in October 6th, 1960, by then Senator John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Ooh, yeah. So, what was his point of um, putting the truth out there? Well, I, I probably wonder. to get elected, uh, but right. yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. He, so he, when even when he was running, he understood that and, and was quite open about the fact that the U.S. had supported Batista and that the Cuban people were, you know, they had no rights, and uh, most of the economy was run by American corporations who were charging usurious rates. Uh, to the the Cuban people and, and uh, as part of their deal with Batista, that the U.S. was supporting Batista with arms to crush his political opposition. Um, so that was Kennedy, man. Um, but then, of course, Kennedy Damn. became president and sort of got swept up in trying to crush yeah. the revolution as well. Yeah. Um, so by the late 1950s, also, uh, U.S. Financial, financial interests controlled also 50% of the railways of Cuba and 25% of its bank deposits, about a billion dollars in total. Damn. Now, companies like the United Fruit Company we mentioned before, they were as corrupt as hell, uh, had been involved in overthrowing other governments across Latin America. They're still around today. They're now known as Chiquita Brands. Um, mm-hmm. and still corrupt as hell today. They were fined in 2007 for aiding and abetting a terrorist organization. Damn, fucking fruit bananas. What the hell? Yeah. So the uh, United Fruit Company was a major player in Cuba along with other places in Latin America. Um, so it was... Com- so. The anger, uh, the anger in the United States um, over the revolution had a lot to do with the fact that these U.S. corporations had Cuba stitched up and the mob had it stitched up. And then when Castro took power and kicked them all out, they were furious. They wanted their little playground back. And they used their influence with the American media and American politicians to ramp up anger uh, against the, the, the revolutionary government, the Castros in particular, Che Guevara, to um, try and, you know, get the consent of the people to overthrow the government of Cuba. Mm. It, was, it was those corporations and the people who were profiting um, under the Batista regime and, and, and the US corporate control. And there was a lot of people... I mean, there would have been a good, say, 10% of the population, which I think at the time was about 6 or 7 million people, that um, would have been uh, uh, living well. They would have been the, the upper middle class or the upper class of Cuba doing very well under the Batista dictatorship and the U.S. corporate control. Obviously, that, so that's 600,000-odd people, <clears throat> uh, would are going to be very unhappy 
with what happened uh, after the revolution because they lost their power. They lost their control. They lost their wealth. They lost their um, easy ticket. Influence, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Not saying that all of the people, there would have been some people that were not part of that category, but I'm guessing that a lot of them, a lot of the people that ended up in Miami uh, were those people that were pissed off that they lost their cushy, cushy life. Events over the next few months became the catalyst for another transformation in Mr. Castro's public image. More than 500 Batista-era officials were brought before courts martial and special tribunals, summarily convicted and shot to death. The grainy black-and-white images of the executions broadcast on American television horrified viewers. Mr. Castro defended the executions as necessary to solidify the revolution. He complained that the United States had raised not a whimper when Mr. Batista had tortured and executed thousands of opponents. True. Yeah, even Kennedy just said 20,000 people had been executed by Batista uh, in the previous seven years, not to mention the decades before that that he was in power in one way, shape or form. Um, No complaints from the US about human rights abuses if they're dictators that we like. If they're dictators that are on our side... It's all well and good. Like when uh, Saddam was gassing the Kurds uh, Mm -hmm. in the 80s and and 90s. Eh, No one gave a shit. That was fine because he's our dictator. Or when he was attacking Iran with U.S. supplied weapons. Keeping them U.S. supplied biological weapons. Um, No one cared. No one in the U.S. cared because he's our dictator. He's He's doing work that we agree with as soon as... He works for us. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, a lot of a lot is made over the executions after the war. Uh, uh, when you read um, in the U.S. about oh, Fidel or Raúl personally ordered the execution of thousands of people, um, I I always say, sure, where's the evidence of that? That's easy to say, but can you verify that? B As we mentioned last time, they often make it sound like there were no trials and he just went through a list and said, yep, kill these guys. And but it admits here, even after the revolution, there were courts martials and special tribunals. So they were they were tried. Now, I'm not saying that it was the biggest, longest, greatest trial in history, but there was a trial. There was evidence presented. The people were the, the and these are soldiers who fought for Batista against the Cuban people and now you can decide for yourselves whether or not that's ethical or moral to execute soldiers after a civil war. Um, you know, personally, I'm probably not for that. I, I would I would prefer not to see soldiers who are obeying orders executed. But if depending on where they are in the command, I mean, if you want to talk about this, we can go to we can look at the Nuremberg trials that happened 15 years earlier. Uh, after World War Two, Americans mm. were happily executing Nazi commanders um, <laughs> after Nuremberg, right? You, you executed right. all of them except one, Albert Speer, the Hitler's architect. Everyone else was executed. Right. So, yeah. I mean, to, to cry foul over that, having executed the uh, leaders of uh, your enemy... Um, after a war, when you've done it yourself in, after World War Two, 
Not to mention, yeah. I mean, fucking Vietnam. I mean, the amount of people that the US killed in uh, <laughs> in Vietnam, yeah. soldiers and uh, commanders alike. So I don't know. It, it, whenever I see Americans um, kicking up a stink over these executions, and by the way, whenever you hear about f- people who were executed under Fidel or Che or Raul, they usually don't say this, but most of the ones that they're talking about that are on record took place immediately after the Civil War. So right. they were 1959, 1960, right? They, they, they weren't things that happened uh, later on. They, most of them took place. They were enemy combatants after the war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not justifying that, yeah. as I said. I, I personally don't... Right, I per- but they had just finished fighting, right? Yeah, look, uh, yeah, I'm not justifying... I personally don't think uh, executing people who were following orders, even if you're a commander... Is justifiable. I'd rather see imprisonment. However, okay, let's look at their situation here. Uh, if you put them all in prisons, the country's broke. They can't afford prisons. How do you afford to feed right. hundreds or thousands of, of enemy combatants or, or Civil War combatants? Um, I don't know. Hard. Yeah. Um, Tough situation to be in. Yeah. yeah. But to wary observers in the United States, the executions were a signal that Mr. Castro was not the democratic saviour he had seemed. Now, again, like, you just executed a whole bunch of Nazis after World War II. Was that a signal that the US is not the democratic right. saviour that they claim to be? I mean, it, just the, the hypocrisy in here boggles my mind. The fact that he was... as Ju- Right, I'm sorry. There you go. I was going to say, just as Julius Caesar once said, let he without who, let he without sin cast the first stone. So you know, no, but the point. I mean, yeah, but but civil wars are always messy by very definition. Where are the lines? What is the law? What is simply revenge? This has been going on for the last twelve thousand years, and to suddenly judge this right now after everything Cuba's been through, and it, like you said, what the Americans did afterward after World War Two. I mean. It, it rings hollow because everybody, to some degree, does it. It's suddenly not going to stop anytime soon. And it will happen tomorrow when a civil war ends. It's just something that is. And they didn't just stand these guys up against a wall and shoot them because they had the wrong uniform either. There were court-martials. There were trials. There were tribunals. And, and to me, that's a really interesting point. I mean, if there's one time when you could probably forgive someone for summarily executing a bunch of people... It's immediately after. Would be. It's immediately after <laughs> yeah. a civil war. But even then, even at that point, they were saying, "No, we're going to have trials. These people deserve yeah. a trial." Now, again, to me, this is a statement of the character of of the revolution and the leaders of the revolution. Even when they could probably be forgiven, they've just been fighting a brutal civil war for the last three or four years in the fucking jungles, outnumbered, getting strafed and bombed and when you read the accounts of what happened i remember at one point um they were they were hiding in um cane fields castro's guys for days uh without weapons or food and uh batista's army were strafe bombing the cane fields and came burning them down and these guys were hiding in the cane fields crawling uh commando crawling trying to you know, escape cane fields is just surrounded by yeah. soldiers being bombed. So if there was one point where you could probably be forgiven for making haste and just killing a bunch of your enemies, it'd probably be after a civil war like that, a brutal civil war. Right. But even then they said, no, we're going to do this properly. They, they, they deserve a trial. They deserve to 
be able to speak in their defence uh, and put forward an argument. So, so again, you know, to, to try and portray these guys as repressive dictators when even at that point they were saying no, there should be a trial, just doesn't just doesn't gel. Um, what they also uh, oh, so I'll go on with the New York Times for another sentence here. In May 1959, he began confiscating privately owned agricultural land, including land owned by Americans, openly provoking the United States government. So what the MYT hasn't mentioned here is that the, the, the data from Kennedy's speech that I gave before that most of the land, most of the, uh, uh, what did we say before, how much? 40% of the sugar farms, uh, all the cattle ranches, 90% of the mines, 80% of the utilities, practically all the oil industry was owned by U.S. uh, companies. Um, So what they neglect to mention, too, is the... um, People, some of the, the the people that were executed were charged with crimes against the national economy. And oh no, sorry, these no, sorry, wrong quote. The um, the the people that were whose land was confiscated were charged with enriching themselves illegally against the protection of the regime of deposed Batista. That's a direct quote from the New York Times from 1959. But um, the land that he confiscated. So um, here's a quote from Castro a speech he gave at the United Nations in 1960. He said, We were not 150% communists at that time. We were only slightly pink. We were not confiscating (laughs) land. We simply proposed to pay compensation over 20 years. And the only way we could pay was through bonds, which would mature in 20 years at 4.5% interest amortized annually. How could we pay for the land in dollars? How could we pay cash up front? How could we pay the price they asked? It was ludicrous. So this land had been sold to American corporations very cheaply by Batista, and he pocketed a lot of it. When he took off and took all the money out the treasury, Mm -hmm. Castro went to the U.S. corporations and said, listen, we want to buy the land off you. We need that land for our economy. You know, we need to be able to farm it. We need people to be employed farming it. We need we need the the income from this land. It can't all just go back to the U.S. All the profit, which was what had been happening. Um, right. We need to we need to buy it off you. And what he offered them were twenty year terms. We're going to buy it off you, but we're going to pay it back over twenty years because we we don't have the money to pay it back all up front now because Batista took all of our money. And the U.S. companies went get fucked. Basically, no, <laughs> pay it now or fuck you. That's what they said. They weren't right. prepared to deal. Now, you've got a you've got a situation where uh, your economy is fucked. Twenty percent people are chronically employed, which is basically where the U.S. was during the Great Depression, and Cubans have been like this for mm-hmm. forever. So he needs to get the economy working. They've got no money in the bank because Batista stole it all. U.S. corporations aren't willing to deal on commercial terms. So what do you do? Seriously, if you're the leader of a country in this situation, you, you've got to get your com- your economy humming as quickly as possible. And the people that own all the land say, no, you can't buy it off us on those terms. Get fucked. Now, I don't know exactly when this happens, but one of the plots of land that he either nationalized or whatever gave back to the people was his father's. Yes. Was his own land. Yeah. There's a video of his mom driving away from their house and, 
She's given him a look that if it could kill, he never would have made it to 90. He literally gives up his own land. You know, like we said, his father was a landowner. His father was doing well. I'm sure it was more than just a little bit of land. And again, so he sacrifices his own land. Yes, he's going to be able to live, I'm sure, in a nice house or whatever as the leader. But still, that's an incredible gesture that I don't think many of us would have undertaken. Now, you think if you're a, if you're a typical dictator... You say everyone needs to give up the land except my family. I, there's a special uh, dispensation for, <laughs> for a my special family. family. Yeah, yeah. They, exactly. that's what Augustus would have done, right? Like my my yeah, family is special. special. Everyone else has to give it up, but you know my my family is special. No, Castro didn't do that, and you know, yeah, one some of his family hated him for that. Uh, particularly one of his <laughs> sisters, Juanita, who ended up being a CIA operative or an agent working for the CIA and moving to the US. She never forgave him for that. Um, and she was a radio hostess, and she trashed him all the time yeah. on the radio. Yeah, there's there's some objective reporting right there. Yeah, but the rest of his siblings stayed in Cuba, and one of his older brothers died six months ago. He had been a farmer in Cuba all along, and he died just before Fidel did. He was 93, wow. I think, one of his older brothers who had farmed some land. Anyway, interesting. So here's what Castro said himself. We were not 150% communist at the time. We were only slightly pink. They didn't go in and immediately start confiscating land. They tried to buy the land. The U.S. corporation said no, and that's when they said, well, listen, we're between a rock and a hard place. We need the land, and so they ended up confiscating it and pushed through their agrarian reform bill. Anyway, how are we going for time, dude? Uh, Just over an hour. All right. Let's uh, pause this one here, and um, we will pick it up in the third and final episode uh, for next week. Ciao. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.